So hi, Arian. So um, Arian, is it uh, well pronounced? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's quite well pronounced. You would in Dutch say Arian. Arian. That's pretty close. Uh, okay. So I'm um, I'm already know uh, Schlagboom. You know Schlagboom? Uh, no, I don't. This is this is actually in Dutch. This is Schlagboom. Is Schlagboom or Schlagboom? All right, yeah, Schlagboom. A Schlagboom. Okay. So now yeah, I'm I'm almost a perfect. Uh, I know a native yeah, with, Dutch with speaker. Difficult uh, sound. That's really <laughs> hard to do for German. <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, what I uh, what I learned from you is that you started programming with Commodore 64. Why I know yeah. that? Because uh, four years ago I interviewed you on my blog uh, about Ziv. Yeah, this that's your, correct. Your yeah. startup, and you told me that um, you started with uh, Commodore 64. Now, what you did, if you just plug it into the power, what is your first action with Commodore? So my first action, uh, let me think back. So I still actually remember it when we got home and, and me and my dad, we bought the Commodore 64. He, he paid, of course. I was like, I think like six or seven at the time. Mm -hmm. And it, it was quite amazing to have like a machine that you could input commands to and it would respond to it. And I was quite early on uh, fascinated by that. And I think one of the first things I actually did was trying to program it a little since we uh, got a book together with the Commodore 64 which was actually programming in basic and I still remember the name of the author it's uh, Nock van Veen and it was like the real first introduction for me to like uh, programming and giving commands to a machine and I think that like I said the first thing I did was actually trying some simple uh, 10 print something 20 go to 10 like uh, quite famous basic thing mm -hmm. with seven uh, i think it was about seven yeah seven uh six seven sixes yeah something like that it is incredible actually yeah, and... quite young at the time indeed. Yeah, yeah and why you got the commodore what was the story behind Uh, well, my grandfather had like a computer uh, before that. It was like a Dutch computer called the Philips uh, 2000. And he was looking at that. Um, but then the, the Philips 2000 was like really specifically Dutch. So it wasn't quite that interesting uh, for my father. So he wanted for me to have something more... Um, That was like more marketable, basically. So if you would be able to work with that, he thought, then you would be um, later on, you had more uh, knowledge, more marketable knowledge. So he, he thought like a businessman back then already. Uh, so we got the Commodore 64. Um, but it basically started with my uh, grandfather having the uh, Philips 2000. Okay, it's actually an interesting story. And uh, what did you do with that? So you you use you, you stick with the Commodore, or were you fascinated by that, or what was the story behind? Yeah, so I was quite fascinated with that indeed. So I started, like I said, with Basic, mm -hmm. and the beautiful thing of the Commodore sixty four was that when you uh, powered it on, you got right into a programming environment. It was like the first thing that came up. And from the programming environment, the Basic interpreter, you could load games, or you could do something else, but the initial thing where you landed in was a programming environment. So that was really inviting to, uh, to program. Uh, so the first thing I did after regular basic was uh, Simon's basic. 
that was like a variant on the standard basic. Uh, Science basic, you said? Uh, no, it's the Simons. From, Simons, okay. Yeah, so from the name Simon, mm -hmm. and then Simons basic. Mm -hmm. And you could do a lot more things there. It had more support for graphics, I remember. Mm -hmm. uh, so I fiddled around a little bit with that. But you had to load it via tape, right? I think so, yeah. 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 So I did have a floppy drive as well. So they were quite uh, rare at the time, or relatively rare for the Commodore 64, uh, just at the beginning. Uh, but we did have a floppy disk. And at some point, it might have come off floppy, I think. So the big five and a quart inch ones. I tried in one point of time GW Basic. So I never heard about Simon Basic, but a GW Basic, I remember somehow. Uh, I don't know what it was, but I did something with it. Yeah, GW Basic, that's, that rings a bell as well. So at some point, I got an Amiga, a Commodore Amiga. So I stuck with the brand Commodore. 500? Uh, and I got the uh, 2000. Wow, okay. And then the 2000 was later on upgraded to basically the 2500, since I got the uh, TurboBot, which was like a uh, Motorola 8630 processor, mm -hmm. um, which you could like plug into the system and then you had like a more powerful computer. Mm -hmm. um, and I had the uh, PC emulator on that as well. So, and then like on the PC emulator, you had this GW basics, right? Kind of remember it from that. Okay, but the um, Amiga 2000 was like the graphics were were incredible for that time. I remember this was like you know like an alien quality. Yeah, it was like absolutely great. So in the beginning, you had like this um, this hand mode, hold and modify, where you had like 4,096 colors, and it was basically unheard of. Like all the other computers, mm -hmm. you had like 16 colors or uh, maybe even less, like eight with the CGA on the PC and. Mm -hmm. Everything was quite smooth on the Amiga as well. So, like, uh, graphics um, scrolled quite smoothly and the sprites were quite big compared to other computers. So that was really a nice computer to have at the time. And what you did with the Amiga? So with the Amiga, I um, did some programming as well. So I was actually still using my Commodore 64 at the same time, since I did some assembly um, on that. And... I hadn't quite moved on the Amiga to assembly, so I was, um, was not that much into programming at that point, since the Amiga was so great for computer games. I was kind of drawn into that for a moment, being like a eight or nine-year-old boy or something. What was your favorite game? Um, I think uh, you had this shooting game. I think it was Stina. I was quite into that. Mm -hmm. uh, then you had this game, Shadow of the Beast, which was quite cool, uh, quite fancy. Uh, I remember that. And I think there was this uh, sort of Conan or something. I don't quite remember the name. And uh, Rocket Ranger was okay. quite fancy as well. Mm -hmm. And then a lot, lot more. But I think those were my favorite ones. Okay, and uh, when you started programming then, so you 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 know enjoyed the games a bit, and then you, what what did you remember? You know the 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 hacking uh, fascination again. Yeah, so I had the um, Amiga uh, back then, uh, and the Commodore sixty four. So I was I was still doing um, the programming on the Commodore sixty four, so specifically assembly language. 
and then at some point, um, I think I moved a bit to C, uh, the, the C language. So I started to buy a lot of books about programming for the uh, Amiga. And I was mostly studying uh, the hardware of the Amiga as well. So I'll be, but uh, why you did it? So what was your motivation? So was it yeah, w how you got the idea you know, to start with C? Uh, well, I think it was just the defaulting uh, to programming. So, like, if you cut all the uh, programming books about the Amiga, so specifically the hardware books mm -hmm. uh, that had like examples in code, um, they mostly used C for that. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. It wasn't quite the case that okay, well, uh, there's a lot of uh, languages out there. Let's choose C. Um, it was more like that the uh, programming books at the time uh, they just had all the examples in C. So I kind of looked. At that, um, but then in the beginning, I remember it was quite weird for me to have like a main function, and I was quite puzzled by that. I remember. So mm -hmm. it seems so easy now, like okay, you have an entry function and you start with that. But then at the time, I was still used to um, a bit assembly and to um, basic, and then just the entire idea of a main function. I don't know why really, but it just. I remember it being weird to me. Yeah, I actually remember that Java was criticized because of the main function that is really hard to learn for beginners because we have the concept of the main functions. It's okay. I mean, it's not that hard, but you are absolutely right. If you started, you know, with programming and there is a main function, so what I ask myself, why the name main? You know, yeah. why not start or whatever? So who, why main? It's a complete strange name, actually. Yeah, so that was indeed so... I kind of remember that. And when you know, of course, about the main uh, function, then there's nothing difficult about it. But I vividly remember that I found this uh, difficult at the beginning. Hey, uh, when you wrote the last time a main function, do you remember that right now? Um, well, not that often indeed. Like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> almost uh, rarely these days. Like if you would program something from scratch yeah. yeah usually to try something out i i know i prefer unit tests and yeah indeed yeah it's faster indeed yeah you do a quick unit test you might use the uh, rattle thing in uh, jdk 9 and onwards yeah exa uh, exactly and quite often it's like a really cheap and simple way to just uh, bang in some code and test it within like a a Java environment. It's just basically creating a servlet, mm -hmm. uh, deploying the servlet, and then just uh, typing some code from there. But you got the main function, I guess. So you, you were able to understand that, and then you create, implemented some C programs. And then you stick with C, and then move to Java. And what was the story to you more? Or what was actually your first reasonable program? Okay, so my first reasonable program, I remember it to be like a kind of database kind of thing, like a file-based database, data storage mm -hmm. thing. Um, so my memory is a bit lapping there, so I can't quite remember it. Um, but I do remember that, I, like I started with it, I implemented um, these things, and I didn't use any version control at the time, so I had like all these... Uh, version one file and version two files. Of course, uh, yeah. To keep the versions apart. And at the time, I had like no idea about version control, and um, so from memory, it was like a kind of database. But thing. what you stored, you know this? 
Uh, come again? What do you want to store in the database? You had a use case or idea? I don't think so. I think it was just the kids uh, trying okay. out some things. And for some reason, I found it nice to store. It might be notes. It might have been my progress in judo at the time or something like that. Okay. Uh, funny thing is I started with Turbo Pascal because this was my the default language on the 8086, I think. And uh, one of the first programs was also a database. I tried to store something on the disk. And I, and I think because back then everything was ephemeral, right? So it was not like a usual concept that if you if you just, you know, restart the computer, everything disappears. It's more or less like Docker or serverless environment, right? Yeah. So for, yeah. And, and this was like, I really was into persistence and database because I thought, okay, now something can persist on the disk. And what I tried to do is to store the expenses, but I didn't have any. But uh, the idea that I can maintain my expenses in a database, this was actually one of the first programs I remember. Yeah, so indeed, yeah, I, had, I think I had expenses as well. Yeah, so like as a kid, I was quite um, organized. So I had like expenses for buying like a comic or buying like a transformer. I was waiting for <laughs> transformers at the time as yeah. a eight-year-old boy. And I would note them all down in a piece of paper and that might have been the initial yeah. uh, spark to start something like that so besides the database program i think i also coded a small adventure kind of game but that mm-hmm. um yeah i think i did and i even programmed in like an animation kind of thing where you would i think you had like two uh, characters that entered the screen Cool. And it's the typical, uh, do you want to go north, do you want to go south? Yeah. And then you entered into a forest or something, and there was a bear in the forest, and he threw, like, a coconut from the tree or something, and then, like, yeah. an enemy made the thing falling down. Extremely cool. So we will have to ask you Larry Ellison about his first, you know, application. Probably it's also expenses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It might well be indeed, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so I... As a kid, I was quite business-like at some point. It's, wow. So that was quite funny. I even had like, um, uh, you had this uh, market thing, this called the free market in Dutch, where basically uh, kids, they sell uh, goods on the street um, okay. on a given day. It's typically Queen's Day in the Netherlands, but there's other days as well. Mm-hmm. And I had kind of set up an organization with kids. So Wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> It was like hilarious. Of course, you, you can't take it too seriously. But you, uh, you are the CEO, of course, right? Uh, yeah, of course, of course. And I had like five between big quotes employees. Mm-hmm. And um, using the Commodore 64 again, we printed like a letter mm-hmm. that we posted around town for um, to ask people about old stuff that they didn't use anymore. Mm-hmm. And then we... Uh, Posted all these letters around the neighborhood. It's almost like a Mark Twain story, almost, right? It's almost a bit like that, indeed. Yeah, <laughs> and then like, I, I kept inventory as well. So then we had like say twenty cups, uh, thirty plates, and then I had uh, storage with all the kids. It was of course under the bed in the bed bedrooms or something like that. Mm-hmm. So then I had like uh, one of my friends was called Hendrik, and then. He had like 30 plates, uh, for instance. And then my other friend, he's called Gijs. He had like 
30 cups or something, and then I would like keep that in the inventory. And it was like really nice at the time. Perfect. And how you started with Java? Yeah, I remember so, you um, on the interview, you mentioned your sister. Yeah, so indeed. I think that was actually the first time I uh, actually touched Java. So I was um, back then into C++. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we got an old um, SGI computer before that, like the, um, the Indy 4000, I think. I forgot the name exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was doing some C++ on that. And then my sister had an assignment for her uh, math class where she had to do some recursive Java programming. Mm -hmm. And Which version was it? JDK 1.0, I guess, right? Yeah, it has one. to be JDK 1.0. I think this was in 1996-ish. Yeah. 1.0, 1.1, something like that. Yeah, so she was at the um, University of Amsterdam, or the actually the Freie Universiteit. And then they started to use Java quite early on. And, mm -hmm. um, I had to help her out with that. Cool. And uh, and then you like Java or you didn't like that? What was the you know? Yeah. So at the beginning, I was still more into C plus plus. So um, I continued with that. So I programmed a few games in that again. Uh, cool. So like a four in a row game, I programmed that. Uh, some other stuff that I can't quite recall at the moment. And then at a certain point, like when I went to university, there were some classes using uh, Java there. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the main language at the university I was at, just the Leiden University, I was C++. I was still mostly doing uh, C++. Mm -hmm. um, then I had some satire jobs as a student at the time, uh, which was C++ again. Um, so they were mostly uh, Windows Forms kind of apps. Um, I think it did something with advertising even back then, where um, you had to scan things, whether like an advertisement was placed on the internet or so, and then you had to scrape app pages to see if it would, um, if the advertisement would be there. And I programmed that in C++ still at the time. And... Then eventually, when I left the university, um, I started at this startup company too. It's called N4N, and they used uh, Java. And it's only then that I like really switched over to Java. What was the idea of the startup? Okay, so the startup was um, basically a bit related to the advertisement work I did before with the C++ application. Uh, so a friend of mine, this old uh, youth friend again, this Gijs I mentioned, he was um, a friend of the owner of the startup and they needed the developer. Um, so I started to work with them. Uh, and the idea was basically putting advertisements on uh, websites. Okay. So it's called affiliate marketing where you, um, you just have like an affiliate who's the one uh, putting the advertisement on. Then there's the network, and then there's an advertiser or a merchant um, who um, um, has the advertisements to be placed on the affiliate websites. And which application server was it? Or you built some, of course, from scratch one? Uh, no, so at the time we used um, Orion. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so it was from uh, Sweden. It's the Swedish or the Nor. Uh, I think it was from Norway. 
No, I think it was from Sweden because Oracle bought Orion server and yeah. this was the first OC4J. And the Oracle Java manager was from the Orion company, I think. Oh, really? So there were two students, actually, who founded the Orion company. Yeah, yeah. So I, I remember it was like two guys indeed, yeah. Uh, it was like quite small at the time. Uh, there were just two persons there. But really nice, very fast. And there was even a user interface for and an admin interface, I remember. So I didn't use the interface, to be honest. So I just, just tried that. So um, I was fast. I don't know why, but I really like the Orion server. I used the Java web server a lot. Then the um, uh, JBoss, of course, or the EJB, EJB boss was the first name. Yeah, and, indeed. Yeah, <laughs> very short, shortly. Then uh, JBoss and uh, later BA. But uh, I used at the beginning also Orion and even Chicksaw. So Chicksaw was the servlet container from Apache. Oh, really? So I haven't used that. Uh, so we we just used at the point um, Orion. And I think I remember that since we were like an advertising uh, network, we got like a lot of clicks and views, uh, relatively speaking. But this was like quite a number of hits. And at that point, we did test with Tomcat now and then, and it would like always crash on the load. Mm -hmm. But this was 2002, 2003, and Tomcat was... I think it was like version three or so back then. Mm -hmm. But the first Tomcat, I think it was donated by Sun, and the name was Java Web Servlet Development Kit, JWSDK. Yeah, so, true. Yeah, I, true. yeah. Okay. and I worked with that. I forgot about that, so you mentioned Tomcat right now. And then in one point, uh, Sun donated that to Apache or something like this, and then Tomcat started. Yeah, indeed. So it was kind of the reference implementation for Servlet. Exactly. And then it indeed it went to Apache, mm -hmm. and then later on, uh, Glassfish uh, reused parts of Tomcat again. Mm -hmm. uh, so even to uh, this day, um, large parts of Tomcat and the Apache software is still within Glassfish and still within uh, PR. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the the history was even more exciting because the Java web server was the commercial server from Sun, and I think parts of that were also the. The, the root of the server was also the JWSDK and then the Tomcat. So uh, it's interesting. Yeah, it's and, quite related yeah. to each other. Yeah, and now Payara, of course, also has an old roots back then to Tomcat and JWSDK. Yeah, so it goes back a long time. And yeah. you quite often see this in the uh, Payara source code where you get uh, references to the Sun 1 application server. There's references to Glassfish. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's all this history that's still in the source code. You know? Yeah. And in Not the very, very rare cases, you could see something like this in stack traces as well, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I always remember talking about stack traces that with Orion, um, in the stack traces, there was always this Evermind thing. And I always wondered about that. How did they come to that name, Evermind? Uh -huh. So I never quite found out, to be honest, but I remember that in the Orion stack traces. Yeah. And what I remember right now is another application server, which I completely for forgot, was Trifork. Trifork, yeah, that's, that rings a bell. So I haven't used it. Also interesting one. But now, what really surprised me, so you have a C background. Uh, you started programming with 6 or 7 in BASIC. So I think you understand pick, poke, and hardware. Now, yeah. you should actually hate Java E. 
So regarding your history, you know, it's like, hey, Java is way too, I know, waste of memory, performance, or whatever. It's bloated. I just like to have, you know, my optimized low-level Java code. Now the question to you, why you like Java E? Okay, well, it was like absolutely not the case that I hate it. Um, yeah, this surprises thing. me because usually, you know, the low-level guys don't like Java E because there's too much magic or whatever, but you are different somehow. Yeah, like absolutely not the case. I was quite intrigued at the beginning by having like this uh, this overarching framework where like a lot of surfaces were there. So I think this was a bit related to my interest at the time for operating systems. So um, one of the things I wanted to do uh, when I was studying was like moving to operating systems. Uh, so that was my initial target so to speak um and java ee bit reminded me like that it was like a kind of higher level operating system like thing with a lot of services being there um so th that kind of intrigued me and it was like absolutely not the case that oh, well this is bloated this is too high level um more like the opposite actually yeah and uh what's funny what i sometimes uh telling my clients is like for me the Java E stuff or J2E back then is like the operating system for my business logic. So I don't like, you know, to focus on the low level stuff. I just focus my business logic and I consider Java E as being the operating system. So it seems like you have a very similar point of view. Yeah, indeed. And like it was the same with the uh, JVM at the time. So like the JVM was kind of a surface environment for uh, your code. And then Java EE. I felt it was a bit like an extended VM kind of thing. So it's yes, yes, exactly. So for me as well. So okay, so we start with JVM, and if I do something with server, like extends the JVM. That's also my yeah, point of view. Extends the JVM. It's a bit like operating system like, and this was my uh, goal to get into at the time. So it's it's it kind of appealed to me really. And you stick with Java E since then with the Orion server? Uh, yeah. So I basically stuck with that. Um, so. I do remember it in the beginning that uh, coming from C, C++ background, I felt a bit um, worried at first to do a lot of um, method calls. So like I had learned like way back in the, uh, the days of the Commodore 64 that method call was quite expensive thing. So you should avoid doing too many of them. Mm -hmm. uh, so this was one of the first things I had to unlearn really in java it didn't matter that much especially when hotspot came around i remember uh, one thing uh, i was in a project with c developers and they managed to write a java method uh, and it was so large that the compiler couldn't compile the method yeah so <laughs> I, I forgot that oh, there is like there is a there is a boundary i think it cannot be larger than 50k or something like this and if the the method is larger than this then uh, the compiler won't compile the method all right, yeah, I could imagine that indeed, yeah. This was uh, like, I don't know, 10 years ago, but I remember it's saying, you know, I don't like to call methods. This was exactly the same. They tried to put as much as possible to one method, you know, to be faster without yeah. measuring, of course. <laughs> of course, without measuring. Yeah. So I do actually know that in the days of the Commodore 64, um, like every call was, and everything you did was uh, measured a lot. It's like the Commodore 64 was incredibly slow by today's standards mm -hmm. and you would basically count every cycle of every instruction that you mm -hmm. did so you had like a bunch of uh commands like lda 
STA, which would like move things around in memory. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you would, in your code, next to each um, uh, piece of code, you would uh, write down how many cycles it would take to execute. And then you would try to keep the amount of cycles beneath a certain threshold. And if you uh, went over it, you had to like remove some code or like be a bit more clever about things. And that was like really the different way of reasoning about uh, your code and performance. Mm -hmm. Cool. And how long you stick with the Orion server? So, or when you left the startup or? Yeah, so the Orion server was, uh, I think we used it basically until Oracle bought it over and then like no new versions came out anymore. Mm -hmm. um, from the top of my head, it was 2.0.3 or something, or 2.0.4. I might be mistaken, but it was something like that. Um, and then we started to move to uh, to Tomcat. Mm -hmm. um, we had, like I said, we had tried Tomcat before, uh, but it always crashed on the load. And then at that point, I think it was Tomcat 4 or so, uh, we, we again tried it. And for the first time, it didn't crash uh, when on the load. So that was good. And How much load do you had? Did you have? So was it how many transactions per second? Do you have any number? So Or could you just... Estimate that? It's a very good question. Since, yes, we did a lot of uh, performance testing at the time, and we always had a charge of how many views per second we could do. Mm -hmm. But this is about 15 odd years ago. So, yeah, but roughly estimate would be interesting, right? How, how you know, the technology changes. I think we did like maybe three views per second or something. Mm -hmm. I, Per um, per server, something like that. And you had a cluster of servers. Um, we had, I think, we had a couple of servers, not too many. We were just a small startup at then. Mm -hmm. um, I think we had like two or three of the servers that um, received the views and the clicks. Mm -hmm. and then we had only one server for the UI, mm -hmm. and I think one server for the database with a hot standby at the time. Mm -hmm. So that was something, something like that. Mm -hmm. And it did indeed crash before uh, with Tomcat. And then at some point, like I said, I think it was Tomcat 4. It didn't crash anymore. And then we slowly started to migrate to Tomcat. And then you stick with Tomcat? Yeah, so then we stuck with Tomcat for a while. Um, so it was a relatively easy migration since... Um, we actually, at the time, didn't use many of the G2EE functions. So we, it was mostly servlet, uh, GSP that we used. And struts, probably, right? Uh, no, no, we hadn't uh, struts. We, it was just plain uh, JSP. Cool. Mm -hmm. So there was like basically no um, external framework, really. Um, I think we did use Hibernate, probably. Mm -hmm. And... Way in the beginning, it was just plain JWC. So um, the company started as a startup, of course, and the developers at the time, they weren't uh, that advanced, really. So they had to learn things about Java still. So it was basically just simple uh, servlet, JSPs, uh, JWC. Um, so at that point, not, not even Hibernate, uh, just pure basics. Uh, yeah, then you, when you left the startup, or you you just, uh, you know, so what was the story after the startup? 
Yeah, so this, when you left them, or yeah, why? So the, yeah, the story after the startup was that um, I stayed with them quite uh, for quite a long time until uh, 2011 ish, something wow. like that. So that this was a normal startup. So this was uh, so the company was actually successful. Yeah, the company was actually quite successful. So we be, uh, we became one of the uh, biggest affiliate networks in the Netherlands, uh, and we were like in the uh, fast forward list. I forgot the exact name of uh, promising companies, promising startups, what have you. And like we started in this like this really old building, uh, but but wasn't like even a proper office. We were basically like in a school uh, class. Mm-hmm. And um, we quite often had the case that like students would knock on the door and ask if there was some class starting here. And like, no, 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 we're, we're a company. You know? <laughs> <laughs> nice. So that was quite uh, low key, so to speak, like really humble beginnings. And then at some point the company started to grow and uh, we hired some more staff and then uh, the building got uh, demolished because it was so old. Mm-hmm. Um, it was actually a funny thing. It was uh, voted the ugliest building in Amsterdam. That's it. <laughs> so for the uh, the audience who's from Amsterdam, it was the Vibaut House that we were. It was like a really ugly building, and then it got torn down. So we moved to a building uh, down the road, with then, or without slag boom. Uh, Actually, the the other building that we went to, it was the old uh, Paroltor. It was the uh, big office building where the um, newspaper was in before. Uh, it had a slagboom indeed, yeah. yeah. Very good. Okay, so you see uh, the mo- most valuable Dutch word I learned. So yeah, I apply slagboom. it everywhere. Yeah. yeah, you can use it everywhere indeed. And this is why I remember, because in German, you know, schlag is like hit and boom is just boom, you know. It's like hit boom. But it's of course this bomb is uh, three I learned, but uh, yeah. for me it's easy to remember. It's just funny. And um, you you kept using Tomcat unt- until the end, or uh, no? We at some point um, let me see. I think around 2007, uh, we started to uh, look at some more advanced uh, things. <laughs> so we had uh, the Tomcat code with all those separate uh, libraries. In our application, and we wanted to to uh, professionalize a little, so we moved to uh, JBoss at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, the thing was to basically cut down on the amount of libraries that we were using. So at the time, we did use uh, JSF, we did use um, Hibernate, mm-hmm. we even used the um, the beta pre versions of jpa so it was a bit of a weird thing but uh, the apis were still changing and we were already coding against it so that was uh, quite an interesting time uh, that's interesting because in particular and around 2006 i remember the days there was a also movement from application servers back to tomcat which uh, was really funny for me because uh, many architects claimed you know they have lightweight servers which was tomcat and they forgot to mention that the war was like a half a gig you know yeah exactly <laughs> so it was always fun it's like hey we have a lightweight server it's like how big is your war half a gig so like, okay how long does deployment take it's like okay i don't know the 10 minutes so okay have fun yeah indeed so it wasn't lightweight at all of course since like all the jars were there and especially we weren't using uh, maven at the time and 
Yeah, Maven had quite a bit of um, issues uh, back then. Yeah, Maven 1, it was like uh, programming in XML almost. Yeah, so that was quite horrible. So, but, but the other side of the coin was that with the Tomcat of the day and just using Enscripts, you had to sort out all the dependencies yourself. So we had, as I mentioned, Hibernate, and then Hibernate had like 12 uh, jars mm-hmm. as dependencies, and you manually had to keep them up to date. And like even worse, we had uh, our lib folder started to grow, and there were dependencies in there that we had like no idea where they came from. So there was like a jar called STBBC or something, and we were like, why? Why is this jar over there? And it took a long time uh, to sort out where every jar was being used for. And This is not the difference to my current project I review. Sometimes I you know hundreds of Maven dependencies. I ask why they are there. No one knows. It's like, okay. Yeah. So with Maven, it becomes a little bit easier since you have only the top-level dependencies in the palm. and not the Too trend. easy, I would claim. That's almost too easy indeed. Yeah. That's, of course... Uh, the other side of the coin again. Uh, but you can kind of see what's the top-level dependencies, but with just a plain lib folder, you have like a hundred jar, file, uh, jar files there. Mm-hmm. You like no idea which jar file belongs to um, which other or which codes you uses which one. So that was quite difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, were you I, happy with the migration from Tomcat to JBoss so, uh, afterwards? So was it easier, simpler, so were the developers satisfied? Yeah, so we were quite happy with it, indeed. Uh, so the migration wasn't even that difficult, really. So we were using a bunch of the same dependencies already that JBoss was using, like Hibernate and uh, Mahara. So that wasn't that difficult. So we thought it would be like a major operation. And actually, it took us, I think two or three weeks or so to migrate over. Okay. It wasn't that bad, really. So why you left the company? Well, actually, in the beginning, I didn't quite left the company, but we were taken over by another company. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, Sanox, Sanox uh, DE, a German company. I know they are from Berlin, I think. Yeah, yeah, they're from Berlin, indeed. So um, I basically worked for them for a couple of years. I also, I mean, they invited me for some architecture workshops a few year, years ago, I remember. Oh, really? So yeah. then we, we probably could have almost met them yeah. since I was in Berlin at the time. Yeah, so that was quite interesting. So they, um, they, they bought us. And so then I essentially worked for Stanox for some time. Uh, and we had to migrate our uh, customer base to their, their platform and... So that was a big job. And then uh, we did something else like a data parser that we did, like an XML feed parser. And and they used the whole time Java E stuff, right? Yeah, so it remained uh, on Java EE indeed. So uh, Sadanox had like a really uh, big stack, but they used a lot of different technologies. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we were just sticking to plain uh, Java EE. Exactly. And um, so with them, it's like it really showed the problem when you do have like a lot of technology. So like one day a developer wanted to use uh, JWT and he started to use it. Um, 
Then like they bought another company and it happened to be using Ruby, I think, and uh, they had Perl code as well. And then they hired a consultancy company who did a project in uh, Portlets, I think. Mm-hmm. So they had like this really um, uh, divided stack, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And it was quite difficult to share code and to share knowledge between like all those different um stacks of technology that they were using. Yeah, but you could sell it as polyglot programming, right? You could see it as that, So, it, I, I, you know, the, sometimes it is uh, people at conferences sell it as a feature, but I, I see this is complete, complete mess in projects, the whole polyglot programming. I think the best thing you can get is uh, have one language for everything. Yeah. Like, yeah, and, and regardless what it is, it doesn't have to be Java. I, of course, like Java, but... Uh, and the whole polyglot programming disappeared from conferences nowadays. But a few years ago, it was a huge, huge uh, hit. Like, you know, use use the right language for the job. And uh, yeah. you know, say, okay, this is a consultant paradise. Yeah, so quite often, it hasn't anything to do with the right uh, tool for the right job. Of course, people would tout it as that. But it, it's just basically using what you think is good or what you think is cool. And These days, um, exactly what is cool. This is exactly yeah. driver. Yeah, that's quite often the drive. Or sometimes it's just what somebody happens to know. Like when a person comes in into the company, or he, he may come in or she via like a um, a takeover, and the person just happens to know Ruby or happens to know Perl, mm-hmm. uh, they tend to keep using that. So that's another reason for, for this thing to happen. And uh, so you left Zanox one point of time, right? Yeah, so indeed. So, um, like I said, for Sanox, we did this uh, data feed parser thing, mm-hmm. um, which was like this big engine to parse uh, really, really big XML files. Mm-hmm. Some of the files were like uh, two or four gigabytes in size. And we did this like in parallel. So we had like a lot of, lot of really clever code. Uh, that did a lot of uh, parallel operations, a lot of uh, optimizations. So after we finished that, we thought, okay, well, what are we going to do next? Uh, so are we going to continue within Sanox or are we going to do something else? And then basically the team that was still in the Netherlands, but then working for Sanox, they kind of thought, okay, well, we could move over to Berlin. Some guys indeed uh, did. They moved over to Berlin. Um, other people thought, okay, well, no, I want to stay here in the Netherlands. Then Sanox said, okay, well, we don't really want a big development team in the Netherlands. So we started to see what the options were. And then at some point, a uh, team of about 10, 9 people, uh, they thought, okay, well, we can just found a new company and that's what Sieve became. And you have still Ziv? Um Well, Sieve is still operational, so I'm not working with Sieve anymore, mm-hmm. uh, but the website is actually still up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, double check that. This of, yeah, uh, it still works. And this was your company, Ziv, or was it, what was it? Uh, yeah, so Ziv, um it wasn't so much my company uh, per se. We founded Ziv. With about 10 uh, people, so I had just some shares in the company. Um, but it was, yeah, like a co founded uh, company. We founded Chief with this group of people, and basically all the people came from uh, Satanox. But this was the group, basically, the, 
at the Amsterdam-based development group who had left Stranos, um everybody together. And then we found the chief. And what happened with the company? Then I interviewed you, I think, in 2015 about the architecture of uh, Zeev. And yeah. you were really happy with the productivity of Java E and the performance. And yeah. uh, so, and then the company dissolved or what's... Yeah, well, so the um, the thing with a platform like Zeev is that um, you don't get income from day one. You basically try to build up a really large user base. Mm -hmm. And then in some way you want to monetize that. You try to monetize it. Mm -hmm. um, so we did get a lot of users. So the users were like increasing uh, almost day by day. Mm -hmm. Monetize it at some point. So the income were, we were not quite happy with that. Mm -hmm. So what we uh, tried to do is that you have like all the links on Seed, all the uh, lists of links. And uh, when people uh, click on them and the link happens to go to like a, a company's website or an advertiser's website, you get like this affiliate reward, mm -hmm. which is quite close to the model we had at uh, Sedanox and before that at M4N. Mm -hmm. We basically applied that to Seed uh, but despite that, the income was still not that, that good, really. Um, so what we then did after that, we kind of extracted uh, this um, affiliate engine from the Sieve uh, platform. And then we created that into a separate project. It was called uh, Link Pizza. And with Link Pizza, we basically um, other companies could use the same technology that Sieve used on their own website. Um, but still, the um, the income wasn't that good, really. So um, at some point, uh, we started to do some consultancy work. So basically, work for the, the different company to just get some income from for, for our main company. Uh, so then I worked for about a year for this uh, UK-based company, uh, Mercury One. And then at that point, I thought, okay, well, I don't really want to go back to the Link Pizza code. I have done that for a long time. I want to uh, try something else. And that's when I saw the advertisement for um, the, the, the job advert for, for Piara. And at the same time, like for, for the last five or six years before that, I was getting more and more involved with Java EE, uh, with the specifications, with uh, the blog and what have you. So at that point, I thought, okay, well, this is actually a good opportunity. Uh, let me leave uh, Link Pizza and see if I just start something else. When was it? Did that come again? When was it? When? Oh, yeah. That, I think that was in... Uh, one and a half years ago in 2017. That's interesting. I didn't knew that you were actually working for Payara. <laughs> okay. It's funny. So you are now a um, Payara employee, right? Yeah. So I now work for Payara indeed. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's so, so in the beginning, it, was, um, it wasn't that different for me, but it was a bit getting used to since I was quite used to work with the Chief uh, team, which was before the Satanox team. And then, like starting with a new company, basically on my own without a team, I was quite used to. Mm -hmm. uh, 
that, that was quite uh, different for the first few months. And what do you do at Payara? What what is your what are your tasks? Okay, so like I'm a tech lead at uh, Payara, mm-hmm. and uh, basically do a lot of different things. So I work on the core server. Um, I'm mostly responsible for the specification work. So that's Jakarta EE now, mm-hmm. uh, making sure that everything happens to there, uh, what we need to do. Um, I do work on um, other things as well within the company. So like the Eclipse plugins that we have for Piara. Mm-hmm. I work on these two. Um, the Archelian plugins, I've worked on them as well. So the company is still small enough to like uh, do a lot of different things within the company. Yeah, very cool. So it's actually a really exciting job. Yeah, so that's really quite exciting indeed, yeah. Cool. So um, I don't know you from... Your spec work, actually. So I didn't knew that you're working for Payar. I know you from the JSR three seven five, and uh, from all the other security work. The question is, why you liked the whole authentication and authorization? Was it required for your previous uh, jobs to know about that, or is somehow you really like authentication and authorization? Okay, yeah, yeah. So that's a funny story indeed. So with um, M4N, which I started first, the architecture the security architecture at first was like really um bubbly so to speak it was like really um and not that well thought out the first versions and then later on we did improve upon it but it was like a whole bunch of homemade code so it was quite difficult to get into um then when we moved to uh at that point i thought okay well there's this uh, jaspic api i heard about that so I thought, okay, well, let's just use it. And we don't have to maintain all the homemade security code that we did before. Um, but then we started to use Jaspic, and it appeared to be quite badly documented. Uh, and it appeared to be quite broken in many implementations. So I was like really surprised about that. So. Um, I tried JBoss and a lot of things that should work according to the spec, they just uh, didn't work and it crashed all the time. Okay, well, this is like really weird. So I tried some other services as well just to uh, verify. And it kind of didn't work either. So I got kind of intrigued by that at the same time. So on one hand, I was a bit annoyed about it. So having this spec in Java EE, but it's just not working. On the other hand, I was intrigued by it, so let's. I thought, well, let's see what it needs to uh, to be workable, and that's basically how I rolled into it. Mm-hmm. So it was quite by choice, it just happened. It was like 2017, I guess, right? Uh, for for Jaspic, it was 2013 when we started Sieve. Uh, ah, Sieve, okay. And... So we. Jaspic is Java Authentication Service Provider Interface. It's just about the authentication, right? No, so that's just the authentication bit. But now we have you here. So uh, in, in in Java E, we have lots of things. So uh, we in Java SE, we have JAS, so Java Authorization and yeah, true. Authorization Service, I think, right? So this is the name, or API, Java Authentication API and Authorization Service, right? This is the name. Oh, yeah, true. Yeah. Then we have the JAC, Java Authorization Container Contract, which uh, started actually before JASPIC. So it seems like Java E started with the authorization and then came the authentication. 
Indeed, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then we got JASPIC. And, uh, but this specification are usually hidden. So as a Java E developer, you will probably see in WebXML like the protected uh, resources where you can say, okay, I would like to protect this URI. So uh, I think uh, I can ask you the question. So what actually happens? So imagine I would like, I have very basic form authentication. So just standard servlets. I have a username and password and I send this data to the server and I say, let's say basic authentication, not form rather than basic is more interesting. So the um, servlet engine will parse the base64 stream and extract username and password. What happens then? Yeah, so what happens is that um, a couple of things happen. So at first there's a, a security um, surface basically, like an entrance point, like in Tomcat it would be the realm. It would um, look at the requests mm -hmm. and it would call into uh, the authorization service first to see if the request is uh, protected or not, or whether the uh, data um, confi confidentiality is uh, correct. Mm -hmm. So we first start with an authorization uh, check. So if it's uh, required to authenticate... And, uh, so sorry to interrupt you, but I think uh, at the start time, the JAC stuff, Java Authorization Container Contract, it's in because it parses the deployment descriptors and provides the information for your service right now, right? Yeah. Yeah. So if you're in a Java EE environment, so that's not, of course, Tomcat, but it uh, can be Tom EE um, or, uh, or Payara, what have you, then it would indeed uh, parse the web.xml uh, to find all the constraints. Mm -hmm. And in plain Tomcat, the constraints are parsed and kept into memory. Mm -hmm. And if you add Jack to it, it kind of does the same thing. It um, gets the already parsed uh, constraints mm -hmm. from whatever server you have, mm -hmm. and then it uh, translates them to a, a set of permissions. Mm -hmm. And those permission instances are standardized. And who is in charge of parsing them? So Jack provides this mapping between uh, deployment descriptors and the instances. Well, and, it's, yeah, yeah it's, it's typically the server. So the server in uh, server containers, they already have to parse uh, mm -hmm. web.xml and the web fragment and the uh, related annotation. So that kind of already happened. So the only thing that happens is that, that there's this little bit of in-between code that does the translation from the set of... Um, constraints that have been extracted from the descriptors into this standardized set of uh, permissions. Mm -hmm. so, so the code is actually not that that big, really. Mm -hmm. And then the uh, permissions are received by a Jack uh, configuration provider. Mm -hmm. And the configuration provider is basically a repository, a bit like an identity store in Java EE security, mm -hmm. but then specifically to hold uh, permissions. Mm -hmm. And um, this um, uh, configuration provider, it can be provided by the user, it's pluggable, but the uh, server should also provide a, a default um, implementation of that. Mm -hmm. So if the developer will replace the configuration provider, you could parse it's that you could replace WebXML with your own format, right? 
Yeah, so essentially, essentially. So it would still like the server would still parse WebXML. It would mm -hmm. still extract all the constraints. Mm -hmm. But then the constraints are uh, translated to these uh, permissions. Mm -hmm. And the permissions are being received by your own um, configuration provider. Mm -hmm. And then there's this uh, component coupled to it. It's called the uh, policy. Mm -hmm. it's, it's the same as in Java SE. Mm -hmm. Um, and the policy is what makes the actual authorization decisions. And the policy is supposed to look at the uh, permissions that have been given to it by the server. Mm -hmm. So it's basically a stream of uh, constraints in WebXML, then a collection of uh, permissions, mm -hmm. and then the policy lo looking at this collection of permissions and then making an authorization decision. Mm -hmm. And right now we only have uh, the servlet API and Jack. Yeah, so that's only the servlet API and Jack. So, Jack. Jazz. Could we use uh, Jazz at this point of time? Um, well, Jazz is in that sense it's related to it, um, and also not related to it. So it gets a bit complicated there. So what the architects of uh, Java EE tried to do in the beginning, and that's mostly uh, Ron Mozilla, who was the original uh, guy at Sun, who did a lot of work there. Um, he, he tried to align those models, the Java SE security model and the Java EE security model. So uh, Jack uses a lot of um, Jazz types, mm -hmm. but it's not... JAS itself. So JAS is more uh, about code security. It's about um, checking what code is allowed to do. And that's mostly used when you run untrusted code. So like when you download an applet or a Java web start application, mm -hmm. then the code is uh, foreign and the computer is uh, yours. And you want to protect your own computer against the foreign code. Mm -hmm. um, in Jack and Jaspic and Java in general, it's the other way around. So your code is trusted. Uh, you, of course, run and trust your own code. But then the user is not trusted. So it's basically a code-based security versus a principle-based security. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a big difference. And the thing that uh, Jack uses from uh, Jazz is basically the permission instances. Mm -hmm. uh, the subject type, and that's about it. So it's it's not using a lot. It's just using some types mm -hmm. from it. Uh, one of the complicated things is, though, that uh, certain of those types were originally intended for this code security thing. Um, Jack still wants to have those as the input, and it feels a bit weird at sometimes. So you have to, like... They create a code source instance and a code source has no, not, nothing to do with with the principle. So everything has to be null and empty and you only use this to pass in the principles to policy. Um, could we see the Jack as a facet uh, around Jazz? Um, a little, yeah. So a little. So the policy... Just the types. So the Jazz donates the types, some types to Jack, right? So some... Yeah return values or method parameters that come from Jazz. Yeah, so you could see that. So like the policy is, of course, really a Java SE type, and Jack depends on the policy. Uh, the configuration 
the provider is specifically from um, Jack and uh, a couple of the permissions that Jack uh, checks for, that those are all Jack specific, but the permission type itself comes from JAS and uh, Java SE. So now we have Jack and JAS. What about JASPIC? So when JASPIC kicks in? Yeah, so JASPIC is basically the, um, uh, the authentication mechanism. Mm -hmm. So it's basically uh, the thing that interacts with the environment, which is the caller, the user and the server. So you could see it if you uh, compare it to a model view controller architecture, then JASPIC would be the controller. Mm -hmm. So JASPIC inspects the HTTP request. Uh, it can extract um, headers from it. It can, it can look at the request parameters. It can send uh, challenges back to the user. It can send response. Um, so that's basically what JASPIC is about. Mm -hmm. So the JSPIC is probably used in the JWT microprofile implementation, right? Um, technically, it's not. Mm -hmm. uh, since like my, my microprofile is, um, how to say, it's assuming that there is some security implementation, but it doesn't say uh, what security implementation is there. Mm -hmm. But uh, practically, the thing that JWT authentication microprofile does is implement an authentication mechanism. And that's mm -hmm. exactly uh, what JASPIC is used for. Okay. So I thought that they are using behind the scenes the JASPIC spec. Uh, so no, they don't. Um, but they could, right? Yeah, they could, absolutely. So I kind of argued for that in the beginning. Um, but uh, microprofile is only based on JAXRS. Uh, JaxOS is, of course, in practice, almost always used with servlets, mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't need to be. Um, and JASPIC has, at the moment, only servlet container profile. It doesn't have a JaxOS container profile. Oh, okay, I see. Okay. So it's like it's very close. Everything is practically like really close. And in uh, Piara, it has indeed been implemented based on JASPIC and Java EE security. Uh, but it doesn't have to be. Of course. Uh -huh. So Payara uses JASPIC for JWT, right? Uh, yeah. So um, uh, JWT authentication in microprofile on Payara is based on Java EE security. And of course, Java EE security is based on uh, JASPIC. Yeah, this was the next question because we have the JSR375, right? This is the uh, Java EE security, the new one, the Java yeah. 8 security. And I thought, actually, if you have JSR375, you could actually implement JWT by yourself, right? Because you have the HTTP authentication mechanism. Yeah. You could parse the JWT and then you can you can do whatever you like. Yeah, so that's exactly how we implemented it in Piara. So um, there's this JWT authentication mechanism mm -hmm. and it does exactly uh, what you say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So and we have the, the old technology. So we have JASPIC, JAS, and JAC. And uh, Java 8 came with uh, these, this uh, Java e security uh, authentication. It's called the JSR375. And uh, it is like a syntactic sugar around the existing specification, right? Yeah, absolutely. So what, uh, what happened is that at some point we looked at JASPIC and we said, okay, well, it's, it's a low-level API. It's a, not... not Technically, not even an API, it's an SPI. 
uh, which means it's like really low level. Uh, it's not really targeted at your regular application developer. Um, so what we thought at first is to extend Jaspic itself and then add the CDI layer to it to make it more user-friendly, uh, to add an HTTP-specific type uh, types to it. Um, but then things, um, we, we weren't quite clear where to, where to put that. So on the one hand, we wanted to keep Jaspic as simple as can be. And on the other hand, we wanted to have this uh, user-friendly thing. And those concerns, they kind of um, uh, collided with each other. And then after a lot of discussions, like a lot of uh, talks happened uh, behind the scenes before Java e-security was started. And then at long end, we uh, decided to create a new spec. And that spec would basically be a layer on top of uh, Jaspic and Jack. Mm -hmm. And but, but it mostly does uh, Java e-security. E uh, the HTTP authentication mechanism is actually quite close to the SAM, which is the main artifact in JASPIC. Mm -hmm. um, but it basically adds HTTP-specific types to it, um, and it adds a CDI to it, and it makes the configuration auto-discoverable. So that's the three essentially smallest things, but that make it a lot easier to use. Yeah, exactly. Let's say I would like to have a token-based authentication, which is just base string. Let's say if the contents is not encrypted, anything is 42, I'm in, and something uh, else to 42, I'm not in. How I would implement that with GSR375? Yeah, so you would start with an authentication mechanism, mm -hmm. and the authentication mechanism would basically only have to validate request method. The other methods are defaulted in its interface, so you don't have to look at it. Mm -hmm. And you would essentially just do a request get header, mm -hmm. and based on the header, you would um, either proceed, so you would return an okay result, or you would return a denied result, and that's essentially it. And then I would like to be the principal duke with the role admin. Yeah, so the easiest thing to do at that point would be to just instantiate a new principle. Uh, there's even like a helper mm -hmm. principle for that uh, color principle, it's called. Mm -hmm. It would basically just say new uh, color principle and you would enter Duke mm -hmm. as the first uh, parameter. And that essentially would be it. And the second parameter would be a list of groups that you would be in. And uh, that's everything really. And if you would like to, to pick it from a database, you could inject the realm, right? Um, yeah, so it's not a realm. It's called an identity store. Uh, identity it, store, story. Uh, yeah. 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 So the word realm is quite overloaded in Java implementation. So in a Tomcat, it's essentially a kind of authentication mechanism. And then in Glassfish and Piara, a realm is more to what an identity store is. Uh, there so was that, a huge discussion in the in the mailing list. I remember yeah. how, how to call it, right? So we had you know like multiple choices. What would be the right name for it? And uh, yeah. for me, Realm is like a database of principles and uh, uh, or of the security store. It's uh, per se because if you send a basic authentication, there is like a Realm that pointed to the Realm. Indeed, yeah. So in basic authentication, that's a funny thing that you mentioned. It that's another 
those things. Um, the realm that you put in WebXML's um, basic authentication is actually only intended by the spec to be like informative to the user. Mm-hmm. So it's by spec, it is not really pointing to an um, identity store or to a database of principles. It just it happens to be done by classes in that way. Mm-hmm. That's a bit confusing. Time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so, so the thing is that um, Java EE, it never really had a very good specification for this uh, database. Uh, Stuffplet and JSPEC, they kind of left this thing open. And then the application service defenders, they kind of started to use the Realm element for that, even though it wasn't intended to be uh, for this. Yeah, I actually use it in Pyara. So you can have JDBC Realm and LDAP Realm, so you can yeah. just, yeah. Exactly. So that's actually not the spec intended thing. A Realm is only used uh, by spec for the uh, basic authentication mechanism. Mm-hmm. And it's not used officially to, say, LDAP or JDBC. But of course, in practice, as we know, it is. So yeah. that's, that's quite telling that this piece, this identity store piece, was like really missing from Java. Mm-hmm. And the identity store piece, the um, API or the interface is, is fairly easy, right? Fairly basic. Yeah, that's uh, very basic. So we had, uh, again, we had a huge discussion about that. You might remember it since you were part of that as well in the beginning. And then we had the um, spec lead at the time. Alex, who had like a, a really big proposal of an identity store where you had like uh, 20 methods or so and you could add users, you could add groups, you could get groups and roles from it. And it was like really big. And of course, it's still interesting to have something like that since you could do uh, standardized user management from a Java EE application. But I wanted to go like way back to the basics. So just have a single uh, method basically that only does this really simple input output thing. You uh, put in the credentials and you get back um, the principles and the groups and nothing else. So just focus on this really simple uh, basic thing. Which was a very good choice, I think. Yeah, I think it was a very, very good choice indeed. Uh, but yeah, there were, of course, with every spec, uh, there are co- conflicting concerns, there are conflicting ideas, and yeah. you have to uh, discuss them, and eventually uh, this idea came out of it. Uh, how big is JSR375? So how many interfaces, classes, or is it? Uh, yeah. At the moment, it's not that big, actually. I think it's like about 12-ish classes or yeah. so. Yeah, it is very lean and, and thin, actually. Something like that. So it's it's not really that much, um, to be honest. And it's basically the same or a similar thing holds for JASPIC. It's JASPIC is really not that big either. It's a few interfaces. There's a few ones that maybe should not have been there. Um, but the base interface, that is the uh, SAM, the server authentication module, is actually quite simple. Even though like JASPIC has the name of being uh, complicated and arcane or what have you. Uh, but it's actually a bit too simple and 
that the fact that it's so simple makes a jazz pick a bit more complex, if you understand what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think this jazz pick is not that natural to parse for a regular developer. For me, the jazz R375, yeah, look at it, I, I, I know what you mean, right? With jazz pick, this is complete different, you know, wording and the the API looks a little bit strange. Yeah, indeed. So with Jaspic, indeed, the API looks strange, which is why we layered um, the authentication mechanism on top of it, uh, which is, on the one hand, still close to Jaspic, so it uses the same uh, method names, like a validate request. On the other hand, it uses specific uh, types for things. Like, yeah, the idea behind Jaspic was that it was like a really general uh, base authentication mechanism that could be used for uh, servlets, for EGB, for JMS, for JCA, like everything that came into a server, like the inflow security into a server, could theoretically be handled uh, by Jasper. And that's why the interface is so overly general. So you don't see HTTP request in the interface, you don't see um, EGB things, you only see objects. And of course, th- that makes it really difficult to parse. Final question to you. What is the difference between group and roles? Yeah, so group and roles, <laughs> that's, uh, actually, they, they don't really have to be that different. Uh, so people often look at the English words and think like a group is something really big and a role is something really specific. But essentially, they're just opaque strings. And a group is being mapped to a role in Java EE. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can be the same. So like you can have group foo mapped to a role foo. And I have to admit, in my project, it's always the same. So a group is always a role. I never had uh, any use case to, to have something different. Indeed. So that's basically what uh, Java EE 8 and specifically Java EE security kind of as a hidden uh, thing added to the spec of uh, the full Java EE platform. Um, that's that the one-to-one role mapping is now the default. Mm-hmm. So before that was kind of an open thing. So Java EE had the concept of groups, it's just in the spec. It has the concept of roles, but it never really said, uh, do they have to be mapped to each other? Um, is it mandatory to map them? Can, can they be one-to-one? So that's the thing that uh, JSR375 added as well, to make this mapping um, one-to-one by the default. Mm-hmm. So in Payara, we don't have to specify any proprietary uh, descriptors. It just happens, right? It just happens. So um, the JBoss actually did this for a long time already. Mm-hmm. So you never had to map roles in uh, JBoss. There are always uh, one-to-one by default. You can map them optionally, but you didn't have to. Mm -hmm. Uh, Glassface for a long time was uh, mandatory to map them. The same for WebLogic. Then at some point, uh, Glassface did add the one-to-one mapping to their uh, proprietary uh, uh, descriptor, the uh, Glassface minus Mm web.xml. But then you had to uh, Storia State, uh, the other way, way around, uh, Piara added it to uh, Glassfish minus web.xml. In Glassfish, you had to set the setting in the admin console. Mm-hmm. 
So th- that was always a difficult thing. So you had to first um, modify the server in order to have the one-to-one role mapping. It could be done, but you couldn't just deploy a var and uh, have it run. You had to first go into the admin console. Uh, so that was a quite important thing for portable applications. Yeah, absolutely. So now, where people can find you, some some links or pointers to you, your work? Um, yeah, so basically my uh, main website is at the Omnifaces uh, site. That's arian-times.omnifaces.org. Um, so that's basically my main uh, place from where I operate. Uh, I do have the Omnifaces handle on Twitter, mm-hmm. which I share with my friend uh, Bauke. Mm-hmm. And I actually have a Arian Times handle on Twitter as well, but I don't use it that often. I mm-hmm. Mostly I use it from the Omnifaces handle. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. So those are basically uh, my two main presences on the internet, I think. Okay, perfect. So thank you. And see you at up- upcoming conferences uh, somewhere. And uh, I would like to invite you once again to talk about more JSF, authentication, Payara, now we don't have to introduce anymore, right? Okay, yeah, that would be cool indeed. So, okay, thank you. Okay, thank you too. Bye. Right, bye-bye.